0: Listening to VC Land, a podcast featuring leading VCs and investors who take us through their investment strategies, portfolio companies, what they like to look for in founders, sectors that are hot, what makes them finally invest, strategies for exit, whether companies should stay private or public, and tips and tactics for companies looking to work with VCs. Welcome to VC Land. My guest today on VC Land is Carl Hartman. Carl is a VC. He's a founder, an entrepreneur, mentor, advisor. He's a non-executive director. The list goes on. He's a classic all-rounder. Carl, welcome to VC Land. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. Well, let's, let's begin with your professional background, perhaps. How did you get started in all of this?
1: yeah so I think great question um you know there's there's an ongoing debate of whether entrepreneurship is nature versus nurture. I think in my case um I have two parents that were uh basically never employed and always doing different things and I think when you do get that sort of exposure as a kid, it's something that is i think in just put into in, into your mind as a as a career path right you can create you can master your own destiny um i think if I think back um you know, my university job. I was in the early days of JB Hi-Fi. Uh, you know, Macquarie had just um, uh, you know invested in the business, and they were going through a tremendous uh, amount of growth. And I think just seeing that firsthand, um, you know, that they went, well, um, while I was at university, the IPO happened, uh, you know, bought into the ESOP. Um, yeah. what, you know, what were
0: you studying at uni? Uh,
1: I did uh, business management uh, with marketing and then I did uh, arts with psychology and international relations. And my logic with that is um, you're always selling something, you need to understand people and the future of business is global. So that was my logic in terms of what I, yeah, what, I like it. What, yeah. what I focused on. But I think that little taste of um, in my JV days was um, you know you start to see the potential of what equity can do when you can buy in at ninety cents on an ESOP and sell for twenty bucks and kind of wish you had more than a thousand dollars in savings in university but <laughs> hey ho, fun European holiday um, and um, I, I think that the second piece is um, I mean that was where I got the inspiration for my first startup so you know 20 odd years ago now but um, back in the day when plasma TVs would just come on the market um, they were selling for 10 grand um, at the time I mean JB was going for uh, basically uh, market share. So it was very manufacturer rebate-led um, from a margin perspective. So mm-hmm. the long and short of it is the cost of shipping determined whether the sale was profitable or not. And I remember thinking at the time, it's just amazing that um, there was no system that could tell us, Accurately, what the shipping costs would be, and what are the subjective experiences that were possible, and uh, whether that would be profitable or not. There was literally a piece of paper at the back of every store that gave a, an indication of of what to charge the customer. So it was just that was something that was imp- imprinted in the back of my head, and I was like, oh, someone should really solve that. But um, I, I was then early days News Corp, uh, then went across to Fairfax, was um, you know uh, a fairly early employee at Domain, um, I think. Uh, and definitely I advice I'd give um, uh, people is um, if you ever want to run a big company, it's actually quite good to go get some experience in an existing one because you learn a lot of things um, that it's pretty hard to learn in in startup land. So process, uh, CRMs, um, um, you know, there's always a degree of politics with bigger companies, but um, yep. some of the good things are like you know process and structure. Um, I just don't think you get exposure to until later on in your career. So to have that mm. um, early on was, in my case, very useful. So. Um I think I think then, then continuing it was then to the point where I, I, I was watching the I guess the first wave of e-commerce um I was seeing all the challenges that were, were the retailers were having largely around shipping and that was I guess the inspiration um you know to create Tomando. and um yes obviously with that was um um you know we did a million seed a 5 series A uh a 50 series B and then um sold by way of uh, a trade sale um so I exited back in in 2017 and it was one of those things where, you know, when you exit your first startup, it's um, you're kind of having, uh, I mean, that's been your identity for, for a big period of time. And you start to reflect and go, all right, well, what am I going to do next? Um, my original plan was attempt an early retirement. Um, that was very unsuccessful. Um, you <laughs> I know, think we'd all like to do that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I moved to Noosa. I was like, I was living in San Francisco at the time. Um, you know, moved back to Australia. I'm like, I'm going to live in Noosa. I think the smart people always live where everyone else takes holidays. And um, I and I think I'd been conditioned to travel. Uh, you know, I think my peak was 230 days in a year. Um, my average was about 150. Um, and um, you know, I remember when I was thinking I'd, I'd come back from um, from travel back to uh, San Francisco and it was grey and it was cold and I was like. You know, it'd be better if, if you're actually at home when you are home to be somewhere warm and um, and relaxing rather than, uh, you know, stuck in, inside with average weather. Um,
0: but well, it was I like in- your thinking.
1: <laughs> but it was interesting. So I think my biggest learning from the Tomando journey was people. And um, look, sometimes I, we made hires and, uh, you know, uh, the, the, on paper they looked amazing and they ended up being just terrible. Um, in other cases, um, someone that, like, you look at the resume, you're like, I probably shouldn't hire this person. You give them a go, they, they end up being superstars. Yeah. And I remember just thinking to myself, I just wish there was a platform um, that could tell me who, who I should hire, who I should fire, who I should train, you know, who's probably thinking about leaving um, and is a flight risk and, and um, yeah. um, you know, who, who is, um, you know, part of the family and will never leave. Um and it just amazed me, it doesn't matter how much money you spend on HR systems, um, there was nothing that gave that layer of intelligence. Um, basically, everything was just varying degrees of, uh, of process management or data integrity. So, you know, you go drop a, 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 a monster check with, um, you know, someone like an Oracle, you get a brilliant enterprise system. Um, but it still doesn't have, like, um, you know, a tenfold increase of, say, some of the lesser ones in terms of functionality. It's just a lot more stable and structured and can handle bigger yeah. sets of data. Yeah. So um, so I guess that was the inspiration, f- um, you know, for founding Compono. Um, um, you know, myself and another guy, I went to um, undergrad uni with um, Rudy, and um, we knew we couldn't build our vision in a day. So it w- obviously we kicked Shortlister off as our first, um, um, you know, product. And uh, in that case, it was really... Um, you know one of these things where the time uh, pre-covid um obviously the issue for most companies with talent was really around um uh, just fine like speed to hire like if you might yeah. only get 30 yeah. candidates through you've only got two good ones if you don't get a job offer to them in a week um because you haven't identified them quick enough they've moved on and probably got jobs everywhere else yeah. yeah
0: um
1: post-covid it's it's almost the antithesis of that um We've got some customers in North America doing one job ad and getting you know a thousand, fifteen hundred candidates. Um, So it's just it's all about uh, cost to hire. It's just they've got some people have one full time HR person just trying to figure out who they should even talk to. It's just overwhelming them. That'd be a nightmare trying to go through a thousand CVs or applications. Look, I don't know about you, Justin, but I think most people in life have far better things to do with their time than read a thousand resumes. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, if you can zero in on the uh, on the, you know, six to twelve worth worth your time, um, um, and worth your time in the sense that they're going to fit skills, qualifications, and culture um, just means that the rest of that can be spent doing things that are dollar productive for the business, uh, not pulling your head out, reading yet another resume.
0: If we go back, you mentioned before 2017, you exited to Mando. Um, Was that a hard decision for you as a founder who set the business up, got it going, was very successful in running it, and then obviously an offer came um, with the bright lights of potentially an exit what, what what was going through your mind when you're weighing up the decision-making process around uh, that transaction? Yeah, so I mean, we started when we
1: did our Series B in 2015. Um, we we went with a strategic where the view was to buy the business over 2017. So 2017 was more the conclusion of a process that was already preordained. Um, yeah, you know, I, th- I think from 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 my perspective, um, you know, your, your role as a founder is to deliver value to your investors and um if the metrics uh are that to give everyone a good return and uh and i guess it brings the journey to a to a conclusion where everyone's going to have a happy have a happy outcome um you know so it's about delivering shareholder value and wealth right so um in in the case of this it it made sense and um and um it was you know the, the right thing at the time um and i think um like ultimately it's a tricky one exits because um there's no right or wrong answer um mm. to be mm. honest it, i think if uh we knew about the potential frothiness of of what the stock markets were going to do we uh, you know hindsight's 2020 20, we might have made some different decisions and um um i think that the hardest thing in retrospect was um obviously we we, we sold to a strategic that um, then went in sort of a different direction with their strategy so um that's probably the hardest thing because once you hand over the keys it's like it's someone else's to drive um yeah and then that's it that's gone part of yeah. you is like oh no, i just want to get in there and i i, I would do something different that wasn't but, the um, vision mm. yeah but no but um but you know you, you make you make your um uh i guess your decision and then by then you, your mind's moved on to the to the next thing which in in my case was um, compono and launching shortlist and, and then again with um with liars and you know liars similarly was um something that was based out of um you know just traveling so much and you get to the point you do business in places like london and and honestly, every meeting after four o'clock is at a pub with a pint put in your hand. and um, <laughs> A warm pint. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it's not as cold as it here is in Oz. And you get to a point where that um, you just can't drink that sort of quantity every day. Um, and it was interesting. As I came back to Australia, uh, another guy, funnily enough, went to, uh, to university with. So, um, yeah, U- U- University of Queensland deserves some massive props for, uh, I guess, building some good relationships. And you, you never know who-, who might be a class mate, you might end up becoming a business partner down the track, eh? (laughs) Mm. Um, But um, Mark had been working on these prototype liquids with a view of sort of saying, hey, like, look at said he'd seen all this um, data around declining alcohol sales. And um, I think his original thought was, oh, well, look, you know, we can bring products to market quicker than the big companies can, you know, almost thinking like a venture studio model. And from my perspective, I'm like, look, I I I am this customer. I've wish this product would exist. Like, you know, let's put our heads together and um and see what we can do. And we kind of birthed liars out of uh, I guess, this mutual conclusion that the world needed it. And um it was just amazing to see um it's probably you know, it's the first time I've done a consumer goods company, but um yeah. it's just been this absolutely amazing journey where um I think going into it and um you know probably relevant um you know to, to listeners is I mean the first thing I always like to do, whether it's my own venture or uh, me investing in a venture, is i want to understand the addressable market and it's something i, I give lectures at at um at u q um uh, a couple of times a year and just the most simple thing I know it sounds cliche, but what's called a tam sam som exercise like how big's the addressable market? what can you service, and what can you realistically obtain and then mm. you look at something like um liars and you've got this massive addressable market in, in beverage you've got this growing um subset of that being the non-alcoholic range so you know a, a, just a, a very aggressive kagar right now on the back of the wellness trend um so this compound growth annually in the category is just exploding um i mean you go back 10 years ago i mean there wasn't much talk of anything being non-alcoholic apart from high sugar you know soft drinks and stuff now you've got um a range of um um i mean the non-alcoholic spirits categories exploded um yeah some obvious first movers there um but then even if you look at beer i mean the original first batch of non-alcoholic beers were pretty average i mean now you've got things like Heineken Zero. They, they physically just can't produce enough. I mean, the growth rates are just... And you can't tell the difference, I don't think, whether it's you know 4.5% or zero alcohol. Yeah, well, so, some of the new ones like Heineken Zero, I think is great. Um, you know, uh, my personal favorite's one called uh, Nanny State, um, done by uh, the English... Um, uh, um, BrewDog and um, they've actually got a, um, a brewery now in Brizzy so they're, they're producing some locally I believe um, but um, yeah I mean like honestly it's if if you had it side by side you, you it's hard to pick the difference but um, and I think that's been I guess the evolution of the category is uh, the authenticity is just getting better as um, science and the production um, uh, potential has just gotten improved as well so with liars going back to that I mean the objective was all we wanted, we wanted to make it so easy for bartenders, um, so all they had to do was just reach for a different model. And many of the incumbent entrants were trying to do new things with different botanicals. And we're like, you know, everything we see says that the consumer doesn't really the, the mass consumer doesn't really care about that. They care about having drinks they know and love um, in formats that make sense to them and be that being that either non-alcoholic or low-alcoholic. And yeah. the low, I think, uh, is equally as interesting because, um, you know, um, take something like an Aperol spritz, um, you know, that's got Aperol, Prosecco. I mean, that's a... You know, it's a high a, yeah they're great but you have four <laughs> of those you're definitely not driving home right you're not driving no but you can take our italian spritz you can put um, some real prosecco and you've just made yourself a, a low abv drink which you can um, definitely have a few of those and still drive home legally yeah okay um or you know you can put a non-alcoholic prosecco and have completely zero so you know perfect for those that um it, you know might you know yeah yeah, you know, all the the prototypical examples like you know the the breastfeeding mother, the you know the athlete that's in training season, um, um, or just someone that just you know doesn't want to consume
0: alcohol and feel socially pressured, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. So put your investor hat on for a moment. You know, a, a pitch deck slides into your inbox. You start having a look at it. What is what is your what is the Carl Hartman checklist? What are you looking for? you've you've already mentioned addressable market but what are the, what are some of the other things that you're looking for that might make you interested and perhaps you know want to see see something uh, a little bit more yeah i think the two fundamental
1: things i look for um the first is addressable market which we've covered um and then i think just probably wrapping that one up is is it big enough for me to care um you know because if if the addressable market's not very big well then you need to execute like An absolute machine uh, in order to gain market share. If you're talking about, you know, a multi-billion or a trillion dollar market uh, uh, potential, I mean, even if you fumble your way through it, um, the chances for success are are quite quite great. I think the second really important piece is about the founders um, and the team that sort of supports the founders. So, you know, do they have a big audacious vision? Is their bench and their team strong enough to execute? Because the bet you're trying to take is, will this team execute um, to success? And what's the probability of that? So, Mm. um, you know, Often, when you've got um, uh, experienced founders, might have had a couple of wins under the belt. Um, that's a very investable thesis because you know you've 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 learnt the rules. I mean, I, I could give you a Subway sandwich list of mistakes I made in my first venture. I can you can bet my bottom dollar I haven't done them again in my next. And mm. I think they get it feels like it gets incrementally easier as you do. Um, you know, you, you do more projects, right? Because like life is
0: this. Um, just never-ending learning adventure. Um, well, it's like um, it's like a footy coach. You know, I've, all of them are getting sacked these days and getting brought back, and they say, well, actually, I'm a better coach now because I was sacked and what I learned from my previous clubs and what I bring to the table now. Yeah, yeah, no, ab- absolutely.
1: Uh, and sometimes you, you need a few of those, um, you know, hard knocks. Um, you know, I mean, what, what do they say is, uh, you know, ex- experience is the greatest teacher of life, right? Um, so I think, I mean, they're the two fundamentals is how big is the drift market and do I believe the team can sort of, you know, whatever crazy hockey stick graph that you've seen is like, how real is that? Um, do the unit economics make sense? Uh, do they understand the customer, their market? And can the key, do, do I believe the team will, will deliver? I think there's some, also some tertiary layers as well. Um you know, I, I'm fortunate to have um Andrew Banks as an investor in um you know, my two companies. Yep. And yep. um you know, one of the things I I I learned from him a while ago was um he, he mentioned he makes um investments often about what he can learn from the person. And as I've reflected on some of the things I've invested in, um I, I actually really like that and um you know, I ing- invested in a biotech company recently. Um, you know guys doing some absolutely next level things with um, uh, using algae um, you know combination of I learned that one
0: algae can basically make anything (laughs) because that's a very uh, that's a very hard category as an asset class biotechs are tough yeah sure but it depends on
1: what you're doing with it so um, in our case uh, the the best validation was um, you know Some of the things that we use, um, like in production, say for liars, I mean, some of your raw materials, um, we know that, um, you know, they might have an extraordinary, like high cost and um, understanding a little bit about food science, some of these things that don't necessarily require, say, FDA approvals and stuff like that. I mean, you know, some of these things cost $160,000 a microgram and you can basically produce them in algae. So you start to think of. An early stage biotech where the yields of something might be low, uh, but there are some things in terms of output, but there's some th- output they can have that has incredibly high revenue yield. Um, so, you know, certainly um, sometimes you see, hey, passionate founder knows their shit, um, huge addressable market, and laser focused on, say, a couple of uh, cornerstone contracts as immediate revenue. So, mm. you know, to take your point, the challenge with biotech is. Um, often it's you know from concept to revenue is a long period um, it's particularly 10 if, years. yeah, yeah if you 've got to go through that whereas um you know this particular example with um with Prevectus, um was very much about hey like there's 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 contracts in the wind that um, can happen like straight up right because of of the versatility of of uh, you know of the i p so you don 't necessarily have to go down a a third stage clinical trial looking at say things like vaccines where there might be some um some food products that you can deliver value right now for for example which is also a sector of high growth so so yeah so i, I think um, um
0: are you also looking for the ability for whatever it is this product this company uh to go global yeah categorically right because yeah. um I, I think that goes
1: back to potential um yeah, I, I addressable think would, market, yeah addressable market and i think ultimately you know every investor in a perfect world if i give you if i if i give a give a million dollars i want 10 back um i mean that's the if, if they had a magic <laughs> wand or plus right
0: um, nice if you can get it yeah
1: yeah so um and if you talk to some of the folks that um uh you know professionally invest i mean they're all about getting i think the magic number is can you make um your portfolio have an IRR over 20 percent because uh yeah, if you're above that twenty percent mark, it's like every ten years you get another zero on your portfolio, right? So yeah. Um so I, I do think when you're thinking about the addressable market and the ability for the founder to deliver a return, you know, you subconsciously what you're doing is like, okay, what's what's the probability I see my money back? And if so, what's what what's the likely return? Because ultimately if you're investing um in any company, you know, you you're basically want to make sure that that as an asset class can deliver you a rate of return better than your other alternatives for that opportunity cost of your money. So, you know, you can stick it in property, you can sit in public stocks, you can whack an index fund. Um, You're just trying to weigh out that risk versus return, right? And, you know, some of my best investments on paper have been early stage things where I've got in early and I've been able to deliver value. Um, So if I come in early and it's higher risk, I want to be able to help de-risk that. Um, whether that's connections to customers, whether that's refining the commercial model. If it's later stage, um, you know, you're buying into the metrics and the growth story and you're trying to pick where is it going to go. So, um, you know, I think case in point right now in the current climate is, you know, is buy now, pay later. You know, is it a bubble or is this the next way of paying? Um, Well, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on that. Oh, that's a that's a tough one. So, look, I think um, some of the valuations are very frothy <laughs> where mm-hmm. you would be difficult to get, uh, you know, to justify it um, uh, mathematically. But when you start, I think the thing that I found interesting um, about particularly ones like Afterpay where, you know, I think in the first glance people were like, oh, it's lay-by. And then it's like, oh, um, but that'll just dilute. Uh, and then the credit card companies will come back. I think the thing when I first bought some, some afterpay shares was learning that um, uh, most of the clientele don't actually have credit cards. And it seems to be like almost uh, an alternate way of base payment. So it seems, and talking to retailers over the years um, and, um, you know, see it firsthand being a retailer now is um, you do get customers that only will use the buy now, pay later option. So it's become a necessity now. It's not just another option um, and i don't see it as dilutionary with um uh against other forms of payment i actually see it just like people expect to have you know credit cards and paypal i think buy now pay later has become something that's now expected and i think talking to some of the the early movers in the in the space as a retailer they actually said the uplift of um of new revenue was actually quite material so um so where they haven 't offered it and they did offer it it's actually brought new customers, so for some reason uh millennials particularly want to pay in installments rather than pay up front so mm. that's just the you know the that's way the, that, way, um, it is. the that way they want to do things for me maybe i'm too old, but um I just don't like I just pay for things if I want them I don't need to break it into installments um but you know maybe i'm not the target market um but certainly I know um you know um. You know, family members and and uh, and some some younger people. That it's it's just it's almost like a budgeting tool for them. It's just how they do it. So, mm. um, so look, I I think there's there's more headroom, but um, you know, whether the the multiples can be sustained is probably the is the million dollar question.
0: <laughs> what what, do you, what Carl? What is your advice to say early stage startup businesses? They've got a concept. Uh, they think they've got um you know a niche in the market and they're out looking for funding to get things going now you've you've been on both sides of the fence here what's some advice you can give to these founders about potentially the best way forward
1: yeah so look uh ideas are cheap execution is everything um you know you can have the best idea in the world what investors will want to see because even if there's a big addressable market they believe the team is traction right so um the challenge, obviously, and this is the whole value of death equation where um, you know it's it 's sort of it 's like a paradox right where you need money to get going, um, but in order to get that money, you have to be going to get traction so um, mm. so I think the best thing you can do is just validate your thesis um, so whether that is um, you know you go to customers, you get letter of intents in, in the absence of revenue, ideally where possible, build a product with a customer, as in, say, hey, this is what I want to build. Will you be our foundation customer? Um, yeah, okay. And yep. whether it's a grandfather deal, I've seen some some people that have given early customers some equity for helping them, you know, whether it's advisory shares or other things. Um, but if you can rock up to a, to an investor and say, you know, look, I've got a million recurring in revenue. Um well, I, I, here's a couple of reference customers, we built the solution with it. If you build a product with a customer and you're validating as you go in terms of real use and revenue, well, then you've almost proven your own thesis out of the gate. Right. And um, it's an easy thesis to sell because if it's good for one customer in that particular category of vertical, chances are
0: it's going to be a re- repeatable
1: um, uh,
0: story what about uh advice whether startup founders should look for vc funding v you know strategic partners family offices a couple of you know just rich people writing checks what what are your thoughts on on whether they bring in vcs early in the piece
1: uh so i i i think it, who you bring in is a very important question i think to the extent you can bring in smart money right so uh, if you're an early stage founder, you don't have an established capital network, you don't have a little black book of contacts in your category around the world, VCs can be invaluable, right? Because they'll they'll come in early. You may not get the best valuation, but um, you might get squeezed on that. But they'll add value um, in terms of opening doors, connections, credibility, and so forth. So you know, if I think back to my first journey when Elliston invested in Tomando, it was almost like, oh, this company's real. You know what I mean? Um all of a sudden some of the retailers we were talking to, it was like this external validation that, um, you know, someone's looked under the hood and um, uh, the carpet matches the drapes. Um, I think as you (laughs) get- So to speak. So to speak, yeah. Um, So, I mean, that was definitely a a, a positive experience. Um, I think um, as you get- get more mature um, as a founder and you've got kind of existing investors that you can tap pretty easily. um, It probably is more, um, I I think, just getting the the business properly capitalized. Um, So so some of that extra value that the VC may provide early on, you might be able to do yourself or through family offices or or so forth. Um, I've always tried to make sure that everyone on a cap table adds value, whether it's You know evangelism people you can learn from um Mm. i mean one of the first things i always do is uh is go try to find the smartest person in the category um in the case of the component story i mean that was andrew banks Um, yeah it was like you know it was a a friendly conversation saying hey here's what we're doing what advice do you have from us um i don't think it's necessarily asking for money on day one it's more like hey i just love you know some of your experience and Hey, if 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 it's if it's aligned to their thesis and um there's extra things you can do together, uh fantastic. Um similar thing in the Tomando's days was with Bob Schwartz. He was uh, founding president of Nordstrom, uh so founding president of uh of uh Magento. Um he was um uh, founder of Nordstrom.com and you know learned a, an enormous amount about building a brand and e-commerce um from someone like that. Um so yeah, I, I do think that If you can try to find interesting people that can join you on the journey, uh, that can add value, that you can learn from. So I'm a big believer that you should always be learning from someone um, that's smarter than you, and you should always be trying to teaching the next people that come after you as well. So um, I was very fortunate early in my career that a lot of my early investors in my first venture were some of the founders of, um, I guess, the first wave of business. And to the extent I've been able to pay it forward with other founders that um, you know, come and ask me something. Um, I'll I'll tell them. Hey, this is what worked. This is what didn't. Um, you know, making in, um, introductions where possible, even if it's not a fit for me from an investment point of view, because um, you know that that's how the if the pie gets bigger, everybody eats.
0: And is there a, a right or wrong time to go out and seek funding?
1: Uh, look, good companies can always raise money, even in the worst of times. Um, I think. The mistake I see a lot of people make, um, I probably see, you know, a hundred odd decks a year that probably get sent across. Um, some of them raise money before they're ready. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about some of the super early stage and it's just like they haven't even – like the model's not set. Like they don't even know what they're doing yet. Uh, they haven't even, I guess, answered their own thesis. Uh, so often it's like, you know, they. I think I've seen some fallacies where people put a deck together and they think they're going to go out and uh, – uh, you know, raise the next money. Facebook. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent and even worse pre-COVID, I mean, I was seeing people like with not even a validated business model, jump on a plane, go to Silicon Valley, thinking that they're going to raise money. And I can say, look, if you, if you're an incorporated in Australia and, uh, you have no U S traction, um, you're going to be way better off finding friends and families, uh, uh, locally than you are wasting time. Effort and resource going to the US, you just won't be funded. I mean, there's always an exception to the rule, but categorically, um, there are uh, just a different level of sophistication in markets like that. So, um, yeah, look, seen seen that mistake a few times. Um, different story where a you know 30 percent of your business is coming from from the US. You're over 10 million in, in annual run rate. I mean, you'll be have a very successful uh, conversations with US funds because um, I mean, you're going to meet their fund criteria and. Uh, and the growth makes sense. And different, obviously, um, early stage networks seem to be quite clustered around where business, I mean, if you're already in the Bay Area, you've got a locally founded business and you then raise from local um, seed, seed investment funds, different story, but um, obviously people like to invest close to proximity to them at an early stage so they can add value and help, right?
0: Well, Carl, you're a force of nature. Uh, we can talk for hours, um, but we'll leave it there for today, but I'm sure we'll get you back another time. Carl Hartman, investor, founder, entrepreneur, all-rounder. Thank you so much for joining us on BC Land today. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah.